gun. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. CNN pissed me off more than I thought they could, um, talking about stimulus checks and this new so-called stimulus deal. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, I'm going to lead with the CNN story because it gets under my skin that much. Jesus Christ. So I was freezing all morning, and then now I get in the studio and it's like 100 degrees and I'm sweating. Even though it's 37 degrees outside, I might actually turn the heat off. All right, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm ranting about the temperature because I felt myself beginning to sweat. Um, we have a serious story coming up as well early on in the show. I want to dive into the mental health crisis that we have in this country. We got some new numbers. Obviously, everybody's mental health is taking a gigantic hit since COVID. Um, <clears throat> it ain't pretty, man. It ain't pretty. In fact, it's, it's rather scary, if I'm being honest with you. Um, we also have... Plenty of Trump in the show today, of course. Plenty of Trump. Plenty of Trump supporters. Lou Dobbs and Stephen Miller were at each other's throats. Bernie is in the news again, and um, he's not playing his cards right, which is pretty much expected at this point for Bernie Sanders. As much as it pains me to criticize the man, I mean, what am I supposed to do? I feel like he, ever since he's dropped out of the election, basically every move he's made has been wrong. Um, Sean Hannity goes after the Democrats in Georgia and makes them seem a lot cooler than they are, (laughs) attacks them on socialism and a bunch of other stuff. Um, 2024 National Republican primary, uh, we got some numbers on that. It it paints a different picture from the previous poll that we saw on that. And Trump's fake populism is rearing its ugly head yet again. Um, Namely, when it comes to Wisconsin, they promised a new factory and they beyond under-delivered. Oh, and of course, Biden's new, uh, got a new cabinet pick to discuss with Joe Biden. Man, the head fake is working. Like, the trick that the establishment uses is absolutely working. They do this thing where, like, they float the worst possible pick you could ever imagine. Like, they float Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun for a position, and then, like, when they pick somebody who's, like, 5% better. They're like, well, at least I didn't go with Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun. And everybody falls for it. Everybody falls for that trick, and it breaks my heart. All right, anyway, without further ado, let's get started. We're going to jump into it with CNN. CNN is utterly failing at their job during the COVID pandemic and the economic crisis. So here they are, downplaying the need for stimulus checks and basically rushing to the defense of the establishment, both the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment, because the establishment of both parties doesn't want stimulus checks, which is why the compromise bill has no stimulus checks. So let's see what they have to say. protection a huge priority for McConnell. I want to ask you about uh, Bernie Sanders and other progressives that are not happy with this stimulus package uh, because it does not include stimulus checks. Uh, The same actually goes for Republican Josh Hawley of of Missouri. But would that idea have enough impact on the economy that would lead to ultimately spiking this bill altogether, do you think? 
Well, I, I think the criticism is right in the sense that this $908 billion package is not enough to get the economy through the whole pandemic. And what's interesting is, as you mentioned, it's not just from the left. We heard Senator Josh Hawley say that he told President Trump that Trump if stimulus checks are not included. But, you know, the economists that I'm talking to, they say, listen, you know, we don't know that stimulus checks are really needed right now. Americans will probably just save that money rather than spend it. And there's a lot of really good stuff in this package, including extending the unemployment benefits that I was talking about earlier, forgivable loans for small businesses, state and local aid from the federal government. And so, you know, you don't want to just kill the whole bill because of that single issue. I mean, it's like if your house was on fire, you wouldn't turn away the one fire truck that, that comes up uh, just because you think two are needed. You would take the help and, and hope to get some more. Yeah, 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 that's the idea. You can't, like, perfect get in the way of, of helpful or, or just good. The job of the media is supposed to be to keep their eye on the powerful, keep the powerful in check. Be a watchdog of the establishment and do it on behalf of the American people. That's what the media is supposed to do. What they're doing here is the exact opposite. So you have criticism coming from the progressive wing, as well as, honestly, some more populist-leaning Republicans, like Josh Hawley is saying he wants $1,200 stimulus checks as part of this deal. And instead of questioning the conventional wisdom, the status quo, the establishment's plan, what they do is they flip it and they're critical of those who are critical of the establishment. See what I mean? They're critical of those who are questioning the establishment. And so the media plays the role here of somebody who's trying to force you to take a half loaf, and really this isn't even a half loaf, this is a quarter loaf, if that. So they're the ones who are making the argument that this corrupt, watered-down piece of legislation is better than nothing. So they're basically the propaganda arm of the politicians. And actually, I don't even mean they're basically that. They are that. That's exactly what this is. Now, I should also note that the things he's saying there are just not true. Like, there's a lot of stuff he said there that is just absurd. So he talks about how, like, oh, you know, we don't, economists I've spoken to have said that uh, we don't even need the stimulus checks. Really? Who? Name drop somebody. Who are you talking about? It's definitely some establishment hack who's doing the bidding of the Republican and Democratic Party. And, and they're towing that line. But, like, the idea that people don't need this money and they'll save it? What are you talking about? There's a, you know, I just saw this yesterday, nearly 12 million renters will owe $5,800 in back rent and utilities by early January. It's the latest alarming sign that millions of unemployed Americans can't pay for basic needs. Quote, this is like a Charles Dickens novel, utility director told me, and that's from the Washington Post. Nearly 12 million renters will owe $5,800 in back rent. Do they not need stimulus checks? What about the 28 million Americans who can lose their homes as a result of COVID? 28 million Americans. Just to put that in perspective, in the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, it was only 10 million people. Only. I hate using the word only there, but relatively speaking, comparatively speaking, 10 million versus 28 million, 
that really does show you the scope of the crisis here. We're dealing with what is effectively a new Great Depression. Here's another fact that blew my mind. Um, 40% of Americans have experienced food insecurity. 40% of Americans. And this, you know, in part explains the situation where you got these food bank lines that are just never ending. They are as far as the eye can see because people can't pay the bills. And then on top of all that, America's billionaires made increase their wealth by over a trillion dollars, over a trillion since March. So you have this extreme concentration of wealth at the top, and you're exacerbating income and wealth inequality. So people are, to say they're struggling, that's an understatement. We need a new word to describe the kind of extreme struggle that people are going through. And in theory, the whole point of some sort of legislation from Congress should be economic stimulus for the American people. And what they're saying is, let's do an economic stimulus bill without stimulus checks. So the main point is now taken out. And why do you think it is taken out? Because really the main point to these corrupt corporatist cretins is the liability protection. So for those of you who don't know what that is, they want to make it so that you can't sue a corporation if you happen to contract COVID, either working at the place or, or shopping at the place. They want to protect them legally from lawsuits where they might have to pay out a lot of money to people who contract COVID at their business. So the real purpose of this is let's protect the corporations. corporations. Let's shield the corporations. They talk about how, oh, this is going to increase small business loans. To some extent, I'm sure it will. But as we discussed with the original PPP program, over 50% of the funds went to big businesses when they were supposed to go to small businesses. Even the things that he's citing is like, well, here are the important parts of this bill, like, oh, unemployment extension. Yeah, that's really important. But why is the number a lower number than it was previously? They reduced the number for unemployment. So every single thing that's supposed to be for regular people is watered down and cut. And all the provisions that are for corporations and the wealthy are beefed up. But it really is, it's, it's beyond obnoxious to the point where it's downright silly that you have, you know, top economic voices at CNN. I mean, that's this guy's title, apparently, like head economic writer or something like that, head business writer. And he's casually making the case that, well, we don't even really need stimulus checks because people probably save it anyway. They'll save the money anyway. That shows you he has no idea how extreme the pain and suffering and degradation and poverty is out there. He has no idea. Or he knows and he doesn't care. Because his whole point is to be a mouthpiece for the establishment. That's his whole point. It really, really, really is mind-boggling. They're doing what Trump does. What does Trump do? Trump just creates his own reality and then pushes it relentlessly. You know, He's the ultimate postmodernist president because he'll just say something that he wants to be the case and then run with it and hammer it home nonstop. That's what CNN is doing here. She's totally making it up. Yeah, I don't, people don't even need stimulus checks. Excuse you? Yeah, I don't know. People don't even need it. I've concluded that. Why? Because I said it. That's why. Forget all the data points that point in the opposite direction. No, I don't think they need it. And so I'm going to say that they don't need it. And people probably just save the money, and you don't even want that at this point in time. If this doesn't prove to you how shitty a job they do, there's nothing that will prove it to you. Because again, you, 
all of the empirical data is on the other side of this argument. And he just casually states it. There's no pushback either. What do they say? Oh, yeah, yeah good point. And we got to make sure that, you know, we can't have the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Perfect? Perfect? No, no, no. An imperfect bill would be like stimulus checks, but at a lower number. Like you're giving people $800 or something. That's imperfect. That's just good. We're talking about a bill that doesn't do the main thing that it, in theory, should be for. It's like having a health care bill and saying, we have no health care provisions in our health care bill. Then maybe it's not really a health care bill. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They're so bad at their job. And I, listen, I should be thanking them because from a selfish perspective, this is great for outlets like mine. Now, granted, am I a direct competitor of the likes of CNN? No, because I'm, I'm an opinion guy as well. You know, I'm more of like a, just a political commentator, talk format, open forum. I say whatever the hell I want. So granted, I'm not in like the hard news business, um, but it is kind of crazy how they do such a bad job that even like opinion people on YouTube who are idiots with loud mouths, like we look better. We come out looking better. Everybody in this space comes out looking better. It's not because we're so good. It's because they're so bad. They really have their top economic voice in a situation like this arguing, yeah, a stimulus checks. I don't know. I was told they're not even, nece- they're not even necessarily needed. <sighs> Oh, my God. It's also possible he's just dumb, right? Like, that's a possibility, too. I mean, you tend to think of it more in, like, the Noam Chomsky manufacturing consent kind of way where he believes everything he's saying, but that's why he's in the position he's in is because he's not going to rock the boat. But these are also his real opinions. So I guess you could say it's a mix of both. The, the, the filtration process works. We're like, Wolf Blitzer is the person who's on air 87 hours a day. This guy's the top economic voice. And the reason he's in that position is because they know he's not going to say something like, oh, my God, we need stimulus checks. We need them now. We needed them yesterday. We needed them five months ago. He's not going to say that. So that's why he's in this position. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of both, I guess. It's, um, it's the, the, position, the system that got him to where he is, is corrupt, but also he's just not that bright. He doesn't realize it. It's like Chuck Todd. Like Chuck Todd somehow thinks he's some sort of mega genius when he's the dimmest, dullest, silliest, most ridiculous person for that job on Meet the Press. Like obviously he's just not that bright, but he thinks like, yes, I'm here because I'm so talented. It's a meritocracy, and I really have worked my way up. No, you're the least threatening. You're the one who will rock the boat the least. You're the one who will not point out the various contradictions in the system. You're the one who will not stand up on the side of the American people. Again, it's the old saying, we need somebody, we need the media to be a watchdog of the powerful, not a lapdog of the powerful. And this is the media being a lapdog of the powerful. So, I can't believe they said that. Even for CNN, this is out of this world. CNN thinks, thinks people don't need stimulus checks. Also, that shows you the class that they're in, like they really are elites running in elite circles because them and their buddies, they don't need stimulus checks. It's just regular people who need them. And they're not really in contact with regular people a lot. Now, are they? Devastating. I mean, this is, this is journalistic malpractice, but they think they're actually doing a good job. Okay. 
All right, I want to talk about the mental health crisis. So I have some new numbers here um, highlighting what I think it's fair to call a mental health crisis in the United States. So this is from Axios. 34% of poll respondents said that their mental health is excellent. Only 34% self-described their mental health as excellent. Um, Now, I don't know. It's tough to put that in context, right? We don't know is that good? Is that bad? Is that neutral? You know, 34% excellent. It's just up in the air what that is, right? Well, to put that in context, I'll tell you that that's a drop from 43% a year ago. That's a pretty pretty big drop. That's a 9% drop in just a year. And obviously we know what happened in that year. Um, A significantly higher number, 76%, said that their mental health is either good or excellent. But again, that's still a nine-point drop from 2019. 18% said their mental health is just fair, and 5% said it was poor. So let's do the math on that. 23%. I'm an idiot. I literally have the worst math mind on the planet. That's obvious. (laughs) Anybody who's watched the show for a long time knows that. My math mind is embarrassingly bad. Um, so almost a quarter, almost a quarter of Americans say, you know, my mental health is either fair or poor. So I would put that on the not great end of the spectrum. And remember, this is self-reporting. And, you know, I guess it's up to you to determine how much you trust self-reporting from people on issues like this. I actually understand both sides of that argument. I understand when people say, I don't really trust people telling you what their state of mind is or their emotions are because People might just not tell the truth, but I also understand the other side of the argument, which is like, well, if we're not going to take people at their word, then how would we know at all? Like, this is the only way to get any kind of data that's even somewhat reliable. I guess if you hook them up to brain scans, maybe you get a little bit of a better sense, but um, I don't know how, for a Gallup poll, obviously, you can't do something like that, and that's what we're talking about here. So some people would say it's better than nothing, and I'll take people at face value. Uh, But again, it's up to you to determine how much you trust these numbers and, and how much you don't. Let me show you some more specifics here. Americans rating their mental health as excellent. You can see they break it down, Republican, Independent, Democrat. So for Republicans, there's been a 15-point drop, 15-point drop in people describing them, their mental health as excellent. Independent, 11-point drop. Democrats, only a one-point drop. Now, look at the overall numbers, though, because I think that paints a more important picture. Um, so it was 56% of Republicans who said you know, they're mentally healthy. or or their mental health is excellent, now it's 41%. So it's still almost half of Republicans who would describe their mental health as excellent. Um, For independents, it was 44%. Now it's 32% of independents that say they have excellent mental health. And for Democrats, it was just 30%. Now it's 29%. So funny enough, one of the takeaways here is that even though there was a bigger drop among Republicans, overall, Democrats um, self-describe as having worse mental health than Republicans. And, you know, take away from that whatever you want. You know, is that, is that nature? Is that nurture? Like, what leads into that? Is it because 
Um, you have a lot of like evangelical fundamentalists who are Republicans, and as a general rule, religious people uh, do better, score better on some um, on some mental health issues. I don't know. And again, I'm referring to there was like a study that showed that people who are at the end of their lives, if they if they have faith, they tend to fare better than people who really don't have faith. Um, there are more intense, extreme, negative emotions if you don't have that thing to sort of hold on to. Um, so, again, you, I don't know the exact reasons why Republicans overall have uh, better mental health or self-report having better mental health, excellent mental health than Democrats, but it's an interesting fact nonetheless. And then, you know, you break it down by race. Race is actually very similar. White people saw a 10-point drop in excellent mental health. Black people, or, or non-white people, I should say, saw an eight-point drop. Um, it's in 2020, it's only 35% of white people with excellent mental health and 32% of non-white people with excellent mental health. Then when you go to a- the age groups, that's also very interesting. You have um, a nine-point drop among the young. Then you have an eight-point drop among 30 to 49-year-olds, nine-point drop 50 to 64-year-olds, 10-point drop 65-plus. And you can see the numbers here. This is respectively from youngest to oldest, 28% say they have excellent mental health, 18 to 29%. 32% say they have excellent mental health, that's 30 to 49 42% say they have excellent mental health, that's 50 to 64 Happiest group, probably because they have all the goddamn money. Um, and 65 plus is 34% say they have excellent mental health. And then even you could see um, when it comes to income level, I think this is actually a really interesting and important number, and it tells you quite a bit. Um, for household income under $40,000, there was a, a six-point drop in excellent mental health, um, 40000 to 99 a 12-point drop, and then 100000 or more, there was a 12-point drop. So there was a bigger drop among the wealthier people, but they also started from a much higher position as well. So like for people who make less than $40,000, uh, it was 33% of them who had excellent mental health. Now it's 27 for 40,000 to about 100,000, it was 43% who said they had excellent mental health, and now it's 31%. And then 100,000 or more, it was 57% that said they had excellent mental health, now it's 45%. So it's still that the wealthy have much better, you know, mental health prospects overall. So, I mean, this gets into one of the age-old questions, right? One of the age-old questions is, does money buy happiness? And the answer really is, like, to an extent, yes. To an extent, yes. Now, I've seen studies, um, and we've reported on them on this show. There's some contradictory evidence out there and some contradictory studies, but the one that stuck with me was up to a point money does buy happiness because it allows you to be comfortable and not stress and have nerves and anxiety over just getting by and just paying the bills. And once you relieve that burden, it is a sigh of relief for people and it allows them to be happier. So the study that I saw is that, like, Money up to $75,000 a year, there's an increasing level of happiness up to $75,000 a year. And then once you hit that 75000 number, the happiness sort of tapers off, and it's like you've maxed out on your happiness based off income. So, and and the, the takeaway from that is, the hypothesis from that is, again, what I just described, which is as long as you can be comfortable enough to pay your bills and get by, you're going to sort of max out on how much income can bring you happiness. So, like, somebody who makes $100,000 a year versus somebody who makes $2 million a year, that $2 million, you're not just happier because of that $2 million. Um, but if somebody makes 
$30,000 a year and somebody makes $100,000 a year, you actually will be happier with that $100,000 a year versus the $30,000 because at least you're comfortable and you can pay the bills and a giant burden is lifted off your shoulders. So to a certain extent, it does uh, bring about happiness. Obviously, it's more complex than that, but it's one important factor when discussing happiness. And listen, this gets to the conversation about COVID and the conversation about the economic downturn. Yes, one of the reasons why you're now seeing an increase in, in mental health problems and, and diseases of despair, as they call it, like addiction, um, is because people don't have hope and they don't have future prospects. And when you lock human beings down who are social animals and you remove the social aspect from them to a large degree, there are going to be negative consequences associated with that. So you have the pandemic. You have 280,000 Americans who are dead. You have you know, millions infected with the virus. And then you also have the economic shutdown and, and less socialization between people. It really is sort of the perfect storm to make it so that people are going to be less happy. Um, now, is it all economic? Of course not. Is the economic part a big piece of the puzzle? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. It turns out when you give people material well-being, they tend to fare better psychologically and mentally. Um, but the thing about this crisis, which again is both fascinating and devastating, is that it hit people at every level of need that they have. So there's, um, there's the hierarchy of need that a psychologist gave us, I think Maslow or something like that his name is, and it's really interesting. So you have at the bottom, you have the physiological needs. So like you need food and water and you need a roof over your head, right? Then you have like safety and security is right above that. Um, which I guess you could also put a roof over your head in that one as well, along with some degree of income so you can pay the bills. Then you need love and belonging or like community. That's just above that. Then you have self-esteem is above that. And then you have self-actualization, which is like the, the top of the pyramid. But the thing about the COVID crisis and the economic downturn is it really did sort of attack that hierarchy of need on every single level. So, you know, physiological need. Yeah, we've covered stories. Some, even though we have some eviction bans still in place, some people are still getting evicted in the middle of a pandemic. So that's going to hit at the very base of the pyramid, your physiological needs, your biological needs. Um, that's devastating. 28 million people on the brink of homelessness. I mean, that's out of this world. It was 10 million who lost their homes in the, in the housing crisis in 2008. So hitting there as well, hitting for physiological, hitting for safety. For love and belonging, it's hitting people because when you're locked inside all day, it's tougher to get that sense of community. It's tough to see people, talk to them, feel a connection. Hitting on self-esteem because I'm sure like, you know, things that you would do as a community, whether it's going to church or whether it's some sort of sporting event um, where you can develop self-esteem and develop an identity and like be part of a team and play a sport, it's hitting you there because you're not getting those activities as, as much. And then for self-actualization as well, it's hitting because if you don't have the, the basic needs met, how the hell can you, you know, self-actualize and really become the best version of yourself? And when society is sort of shut down because it has to be shut down because of a deadly virus, how are you going to fulfill that need when, like, so much of society just isn't functioning and there's no outlet for that stuff? So it really is, is devastating. And, you know, you need to get the virus under control, obviously, in order to have any – any real shot at addressing these problems, but it just seems like we're compounding the problem um, with another crisis on top of the crisis. Like we have the COVID crisis, and then we have the economic crisis as a result of the COVID crisis, and then we have the mental health crisis 
as a result of the economic crisis and the COVID crisis. So it's just everything is just people just keep getting slapped in the face and getting their eyes spit in. And it's like, how do you begin to untangle such a complex weave of, of problems? And it's not easy. It's not easy. And it requires good governance. It requires um, intelligence, poise, discipline. And we're just not in a place where we're, we're doing that effectively and efficiently. It's just not happening. And so, you know, you look around the world, Australia's basically defeated coronavirus. New Zealand as well, basically defeated coronavirus. And they're having concerts and whatnot, and then we're over here breaking records every single day. We're basically losing, we're basically having a 9-11 every single day in this country. I mean, think about that, a 9-11 every single day. That's unbelievable. That's really out of this world. And so, um, I mean, you need the safety regulations in place. You need universal masks. You need intelligent targeted lockdowns. Um, you got to get the virus under control. You got to get the economic stability. You need to do universal basic income for that, Medicare for all. These are very basic, simple, straightforward solutions, but would definitely work. And then after you get that stuff under control, yes, we can begin to talk about this mental health crisis and what people are missing in their lives. I do think um, our hyper-individualistic society was already causing mental health problems. And then now the hyper-individualism has been put on steroids and human growth hormone because it, we're forced to be more like that because of the pandemic and because society had to at least half shut down. And so we're really seeing the downsides of that as we speak now with these numbers on mental health. And just so everybody understands, like the UN does a, a happiness report uh, pretty often, and we've covered the results of it on this show a number of times. And a, a, as a general rule, it's the Scandinavian countries that do better than everybody else when it comes to mental health. And it's like, well, what did they have that we don't have? How are we lacking where they're doing well? And I actually think the answer is very straightforward and very simple. On the one hand, they have vibrant, thriving social democracies where you have a real strong social safety net where very few people, if anybody, really falls through the cracks. So a lot of these countries have universal health care. They have free college, universal education. They have paid vacation time by law, higher wages. Everybody's in a union in, in some of the Scandinavian countries. Um, so there's that. There's the economic security angle of it. But then there's also that sense of community, that sense of community, which we really don't have here. We have hyper-individualism here. And I think in order for people to feel more fulfilled and happy, they don't even necessarily realize it and know it. But that's an important part of being a human being is finding some sort of community where you can feel like you're at home and where you can find yourself and find your identity. And we've sort of ignored that part of our psychological needs for a long time. And um, the results are devastating. And I don't care how you find that community. If it's a church group, if it's sports, if it's, if it's some you know, niche thing online, and then you go to the conventions for whatever game it might be, or it doesn't matter. But people sort of need that, and we don't get that as much here. Whereas the healthier countries, they have the economic security brought about by social democracy, and they have that feeling of belonging and like what they're doing matters. And then on the individual level, you also need meaning and purpose, which is a, you know, a much longer conversation than we're going to get into for purposes of this segment. But basically the point of this segment is to point out that at every level of society, we're degrading at this point. Some of it's self-imposed, but a lot of it's not self-imposed. And we have to stop this slide in the wrong direction because I shudder at the thought of how bad it could really get. Okay.
All right, let's, let, let me show you some Trump supporters. What do you guys think of that? Funny enough, this is lightening it up a little bit. <laughs> Fox Business Network, I'm not sure if this is Fox Business or Fox News, but one of the Fox networks spoke to some Trump supporters at his rally in Georgia. Uh, and they're doing this to see what they think of the election and to see where they're at. And it's just as bad, if not worse, than you thought it would be.
Yeah, and if you read a single article before the election about how the votes were going to roll in, you would have known that's when a lot of these states were beginning to count their mail-in ballots. And it's no surprise that they went massively for Joe Biden because, number one, mail-in ballots historically go more for Democrats than Republicans in the first place. And number two, they went even more for Biden because Donald Trump was telling people, don't do mail-in votes. So it's like they caused this problem, and then they're like, can you believe there's a problem? Yeah, of course I can. You caused it. Your guy was saying, don't do mail-in votes. You know, like, what are you talking about? And you get the sense that even if you give these people that fact, and I, I, you know, I was on Rogan and I told everybody this, and I said it a number of times, I said it over and over and over, and even given the fact that I was telling people beforehand, and there were articles pointing this out beforehand, there's still so many people who are just like, no, must be rigged, must be fake. But I, if it's rigged, if it's fake, how did I know it was going to happen beforehand? It's not that hard to read these things through. Yeah, when you count the votes on election day, Trump's going to have a small lead because Republicans vote more on election day. Once you start counting the mail-ins, of course it's going to flip. Of course you're going to get way more Biden votes. And so did Trump build up a big enough lead where he could hold off you know, the, the charge of counting the mail-in votes? The answer was no. But they bring it up like it's so nefarious. Oh, my God, the later votes all broke for Biden. Yeah, we knew that was going to happen. Um, one of the guys says, this is the most rigged election ever, and the politicians are bought off. See, that's the other thing that bothers me about this, is that, and this is like the Alex Jones thing, too. Like, he'll say something that has a tiny grain of truth in it, and that truth is enough to hook people into the lie also. So I don't, I don't think this person is lying, because I think they believe it's the most rigged election ever. But, like, the politicians being bought off part is totally true. But, like, Trump actually winning the election is utter nonsense, and that didn't happen. Somebody says, oh, it's the largest coup. Really? The largest coup of all time? Okay. And then they go on to somewhat true criticism of, like, social media and tech giants. They're like, yeah, they're, they're micromanaging and controlling the process and controlling the narrative and trying to, you know, censor certain things and deplatform certain things and put warnings on Twitter. That's all true. But then they go into crazy land, and they're like, and China and Russia and all these other countries want Biden, and the whole point is to make us a Marxist socialist country. They went from, like, a somewhat legit criticism of, like, big tech controlling the dialogue and the narrative and censoring. That's kind of true, and I'm against any sort of censorship. But then they go right to, and therefore, like, you know, Biden is Xi Jinping's puppet and, and Vladimir Putin's puppet. And it's like, these guys, they were never actually, like, against Russiagate in principle. They just would rather be Russiagating the Democrats. You know what I mean? Like, it's McCarthyism no matter what. It's McCarthy smears no matter what. When the Democrats do it to Trump and pretend like he's a Manchurian candidate when he wasn't, or now they're doing this to Biden and acting like, you know, the other, I love the other conspiracy theories. Oh, the Dominion voting machines are made in, like, Venezuela and Cuba. So really, it's Maduro who, uh, who wanted Joe Biden to win. That's what's going on here, is you have this international communist plot to get Biden elected by them rigging the voting machines up front, as if, like, Maduro is such close ally of Biden or something, when Biden's going to continue the efforts to try to overthrow Maduro. I mean, these people are, are living on another planet. The idea that this corporatist neoliberal is somehow in agreement with communism. Like, what? Um, and then you have, they're calling the other Republican politicians who aren't standing up for Trump now traitors. And my response to that is, you guys created a monster, man. You really did. You guys created a monster, and now you don't know how to deal with it. The other Republican politicians fed this every single step of the way. Fox News fed this every single step of the way. And now you don't know how to control this Frankenstein. That's what's happening. And, you know, 
the funny thing is, they get criticism correctly from the left, too, which is like they're totally chicken shit in that they like half go along with Trump's lunatic rantings on this. You know what I mean? Like they will not actively stand up. Very few of them actively stand up and say, you're full of shit. The election's over. You lost. A lot of them do like this, you know, let me make some talking points. Let me have some talking points that are kind of in agreement with Trump, but also never fully say what he's saying, like rigged election, fraudulent. So like there's criticism from the left, which is more accurate. But funny enough, even though they're trying to appease this monster now, it's not going to work because they want you to like really go all in, rigged election, fraudulent, Trump won, Trump should be in office, we need to keep him there no matter what. It doesn't matter if we literally do a coup ourselves and overthrow the results of the election. So, but this is what happens, man. You guys created a monster, now you don't know how to deal with it. Um, and then, so the, let me get back to the point that I told you I would get back to. I'm mad at everybody. So, of course I'm mad at Trump for being a pathological liar, saying things that are not true, denying and downplaying and rejecting the legitimacy of the election. Um, you know, in a heartbeat, if, if he had the military on his side and the military was like, we're going to keep you in power, he'd be like, cool, I'm going to stay in power. This guy doesn't care at all about principles or, or democracy or peaceful transition of power or rule of law. He's a malignant narcissist, and he can only see things through the lens of, does it benefit me or does it not benefit me? And this was embarrassing to him, and he would do anything to override that embarrassment, including staying in power. So, like, I hate him for that reason, for kind of bringing us to this crisis point and perpetually keeping us in this crisis point. So, of course, I hate him. I hate the Republicans for being chicken shit in the face of what he's doing. Um, but then also, and here's the most important point, not only do I blame Fox News for creating the monster and now not knowing how to control it, I actually blame mainstream media as well. Now, you might say, well, hold on now. Mainstream media is not, you know, fostering this. If anything, they're trying to debunk it and everything now. Yeah, but you wouldn't have a situation where these people exist if the media wasn't so smug and elitist and wrong about everything in the first place. So, in other words, you have a media that, for example, lied us into the Iraq war. You have a media that pushed Russiagate relentlessly and falsely accused President Trump of being a Manchurian candidate to Russia. You've lost all credibility. And so now when you're out there and you're like, guys, look, Trump actually lost. Biden won. We know that as a matter of fact. You're incorrect. Let me fact check you. These people don't want to hear it. And in part, they don't want to hear it because they're not that bright. But also in part, they don't want to hear it because why would anybody want to hear anything from you? You're smug, elitist clowns who have been wrong about everything. And you're on your high horse and you look down your nose at them. So there's been like, for us to get to this point with this like diet, sad coup attempt that has Benny Hill music in the background, for us to get to this point, there had to be a failure at every level of society. It had to be Trump, it had to be the Republican Party, it had to be the Democratic Party, it had to be conservative media, it had to be liberal media. It had to be every level of society, there was a giant breakdown to get to the point where the most insane outright lies and falsehoods are things that are actually casually believed because has developed more trust in their eyes than the entire media apparatus and all of our institutions combined. That says a lot. That's a failure, not just of Trump and these people, but it's a failure of our institutions. And that's the part that nobody's going to reckon with. Because it's so easy to just point your finger at this and say, evil, bad, stupid, dumb. Like, yeah, got it. Of course those things. But how did we get here? And if you don't care about how we got here, you're not really going to fix it. So there you have it, man. It's... um. It ain't pretty.
There's a lot of people who believe these things. They'll never accept the legitimacy of the election. And we really are doing a long-term permanent damage to the health of our country. And I think that's pretty obvious to see. Okay. All right, let's go to Lou Dobbs and Stephen Miller, because this got really awkward. Lou Dobbs and Stephen Miller are two diehard Trump sycophants, and um, they awkwardly went at it on live TV. And the Republicans do nothing, Stephen. Nothing. It's, 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 it's wrong. It's, right. What's wrong with and the Republican Party? Where is the outrage? Really, I mean, Tens of millions... Tens of millions of ballots. Where the hell are the Republicans? No signature Where the hell are the Republicans? You're right, Where Lou. Are they? Tens of millions of ballots and nationwide, no signature checks, no citizenship checks, no residency checks, no age checks, no criminal record checks, not even checking if you're alive or dead? Are we a third world country? Are we a banana republic? What has it come to? If this is only legal ballots from U.S. citizens, let me tell you what this president to. gets four more years. Let me, and, 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 you know, from your lips to God's ears, uh, the reality is that this president right now is fighting, and let's be straightforward about it, he's fighting all alone. And Ted Cruz has stepped up to say he'll argue before the Supreme Court. Why in God's green earth wouldn't the White House jump on it? Why shouldn't they accept that right now? And I'll just say this one other thing, though. If three state legislatures, I just outlined, one correction in no, Wisconsin. No, no, see, but I won't let you say, I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you do that. I ask a question. You and I, we're reasonably smart and decent fellows. Why don't you answer me? That's all I'm asking here, Stephen. Why don't you guys jump and salute Ted Cruz and say, yes, we want you on the team now? My God, this is not a time for internecine nonsense on the part of the Republican Party, which is watching its blood drain into the streets because they're gutless. But you're right, Lou. You and I are great friends, and we have the same mind and the same thought on this issue. We are simpatico. And it is time for everyone involved in this process to stand up, do right by country, do right by God, do right by their conscience, and stand for the principle of one citizen, one vote. You'll have no argument and no quarrel with me on that, Lou. Not now, not ever. Except for one thing. What I asked you about was Ted Cruz. Well, Lou, I'm, as you know, know, I'm speaking today as a representative of the... Welcome into the leadership. I know you are. I know who you are, and I know what you do. You know me, and you know what I do. My job is to get answers to the questions I ask. They're desperate, and they're really mad, and they're turning on each other. And very, very shortly, the finger-pointing is going to happen, because this thing is imploding in a colossal way in front of everybody's eyes. And so at some point, the realization will set in, and there will be a lot of finger-pointing, and there are going to be a lot of fractures on the Trump right, and it's already getting delicious. See, this is what happens. When you're in a bad mood, it doesn't take much to, like, make you spar with somebody, and that's what's happening here. 
Like, Lou Dobbs is in a bad mood because none of the cases are going Trump's way. And so now he's sort of lashing out at somebody who's nominally his ally on paper, and he's, like, mic- trying to micromanage their legal approach, as, by the way, as if Lou Dobbs knows what will work and what won't work. Um, and you can tell Stephen Miller doesn't even really know how to deal with it, right? He's just like, no, I mean, I totally agree. I, absolutely. Lou's like, you're not answering the question. So um, it's just hilarious, by the way, that Lou Dobbs thinks that Ted Cruz is going to ride in on his white horse and save the day. He really does believe that. That clip goes on, and he's like, at the end, he's like, I want to thank the patriot Ted Cruz for stepping up and serving his country. Yes, Ted Cruz to the rescue, good sir. Ted Cruz ain't going to change Dickie McGee's axe. Not going to happen. Ted Cruz saving the day. Oh, please. Just to put this in perspective for everybody, you know the whole, like, Sidney Powell, we're going to release the Kraken thing? Well, there's a reason why the Trump team had to officially distance themselves from her, because she's crazy and she has no damn evidence. And so apparently her Kraken lawsuit was already dismissed. So it's not released the Kraken, it's released the... (laughs) That's what you released. Um, And then also, last night we learned, the Supreme Court threw out the Pennsylvania lawsuit. They were trying, the Trump people were trying to get all of the mail-in votes, over 2 million mail-in votes, they were trying to get them all thrown out in Pennsylvania. And every court was like, come again? <laughs> what do you want to do? And they concoct these ridiculous theories. By the way, I love how they're sort of openly arguing for voter suppression, and they don't realize that they're doing it. With their whole, like, only count the legal votes, not the illegal votes. Okay, well, what counts as an illegal vote then? Well, you got to do signature matching. You know what signature matching is? They want to they wanna make sure the signatures look identical from one person and how their signature lo- looks when it's not on a ballot versus when it's on a ballot. Guys, I got news for you. I've never done two signatures in my enti- entire life that have looked exactly the same. You could nitpick it to the high heavens and throw out anything that's actually my signature. You could say, no, this is a little different, so I'm going to throw it out. That's what they want to do. They want to go to all the Democratic areas. They want to go to all the mail-in votes, which are overwhelmingly pro-Biden. And they're like, well, let's throw them out because, uh, I don't know, you didn't do signature matching. We want you to do signature matching. We want you to throw things out. This is what they do. They try to weasel their way out of counting votes. And then what they do is they just declare every vote that they're throwing out as an illegal vote. And so they want to micromanage and weasel their way through these votes and find any excuse to dismiss votes that should be counted. The idea that there's like, what, millions of undocumented immigrants who are voting in this election or something and is throwing it? I mean, that's a right-wing fantasy, the likes of which it's impossible. Hard for me to imagine that anybody really even believes that. Because I I told this story on air before. Uh, Granted, it's an anecdote, but I think it's funny because it's also really true. Um, But have you ever driven behind somebody who's probably an illegal immigrant? What do you notice about how they – they're going like the exact speed limit or a little bit under it because they don't want to get pulled over because they don't want to get deported. And like – so the idea that somebody who's terrified about being deported, they're just going to casually show up to go vote when they're not a citizen and they're not allowed to vote – and they're going to roll the dice on them? Of course not. Of course. It's just ridiculous. There is no widespread voter fraud. Even Bill Barr said this. Bill Barr is a deep Trump sycophant. Even he's like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. We opened up the investigation. Nothing really came of it. You've been given your day in court, guys. Like, that's the point. If you were to try to make your case, how would you go about doing it? Well, you go to the court system. Okay, we think there's problems with this election. Let's present the evidence. If you don't have convincing evidence, you're not going to win. And you don't have convincing evidence. And the cherry on top of all this is what? This is overwhelming right-wing judiciaries. It's a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court, and they threw out the Pennsylvania lawsuit. You want to know why? Because there's nothing there. Because Joe Biden actually won this election fair and square. But these guys are melting down. They would, 
the, the immoral and unethical action that they would take to try to get Trump to win this election, it's legendary. There's nothing they wouldn't do to try to hand this election to Trump. So as they're committing a coup, they scream like, it's a democratic coup as we do the coup. They're just really deeply unserious people and they're really stupid. And it's kind of amazing to me that they've entertained the idea that this has a chance in hell for as long as they have. But by the way, this is why you also see the fleeing from Fox News to Newsmax and and One American News is because there are more voices on Fox who are willing to be like, this is silly and it's not going anywhere. So they're telling the truth and being punished by the audience as a result of that, which says something about the far right wing base, doesn't it? Again, you want to create a network to the left of MSNBC? People want you to be more policy focused and more principled. You want to create a network to the right of Fox News? People want you to be less policy focused and less principled and more of a sycophantic authoritarian to the dear leader. I really do think that says a lot. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Bernie Sanders, we will be talking about our guy, Bernie, but I will be upset. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
we back, bitch. I was eating. I was eating. And actually, I won't use past tense. I am eating some strawberries and some kiwi. That's what I'm eating. And it's delicious. They're very good. You know how sometimes the fruit's not that good? It's good this time. Mmm. I think I lean a little more in the kiwi direction than the strawberry direction. I think kiwis might taste a little bit better. Mmm. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm back, y'all. I'm back. Can't stop eating because I'm a fat ass. All right, we're going to go right to... um, We're going to go right to Bernie. Bernie Sanders was asked how Biden's cabinet picture going. Um, I'm going to let you judge his answer for yourself. How do you feel about the cabinet so far? Um, Do you feel like there's been enough progressive representation in Joe Biden's cabinet picks? Well, as I have said many times, um, the progressive movement in this country uh, is a very significant part of the Democratic coalition. I know some of the folks in the Democratic establishment don't want to recognize it, but that is a fact. Uh, And in truth, if it wasn't for the hard work of a lot of progressive grassroots organizations who got young people involved in the political process, working class people involved in a way that we have not seen, Joe Biden would not have won that election. And I think uh, that's pretty clear. And uh, my point has been from day one uh, that uh, those voices, that movement, uh, deserves representation uh, in the cabinet. Uh, And if your question is, have I seen that yet? Uh, No, I have not. I've seen some good appointments, uh, people that I like. I think people who are really, really smart, experienced, uh, but I have not seen uh, people from the progressive movement, per se, uh, in that cabinet. Are you holding out hope for any position, specific cabinet position to get a progressive voice? It's not a position. It is a question of should the progressive movement in this country, in which tens of millions, many millions, I shouldn't say tens of millions, but many, many millions of people, that a movement that constitutes 35, 40 percent of the Democratic Party, should that movement be represented in one capacity or, or more than one capacity or not? The answer is absolutely yes. I don't like that answer because it's almost like she's giving him the opportunity to be specific, you know, whatever it might be. Yes, for Secretary of Defense. Um, Yes, for Secretary of State. This would be more foreign policy uh, aligned. But yes, for Treasury Secretary, whatever, fill in the blank. He could say, I want this person for this position. And then what happens is he creates a new cycle around it. And when he creates a new cycle around it, that increases left-wing pressure. And so what would happen in a situation like that is our revolution, Justice Democrats, a lot of the other grassroots left-wing organizations would all release memos or, or letters of support for progressive X in, in 
why role. And so you create, you create public pressure. You create a campaign when you go into specifics. And then you make it a lot more difficult for Biden to, to wiggle his way out of this stuff or weasel his way out of this stuff. And, you know, you start keeping score and keeping tally. Oh, how much are you actually on our side? Well, let's see. I need to see tangible stuff. And this is, in my opinion, where Bernie Sanders fails the most, is that Bernie Sanders, don't get it twisted, man, he really is, in many ways, he's a marketing genius because he's the guy who sort of led the charge and led the movement to really increase the popularity of all the things that we think of like, duh, of course they're popular today, like Medicare for All, like a living wage. A lot of the stuff he championed, there was a time when it was viewed as like not majority positions, and now it's the overwhelming majority, and he's to thank for that. And he got you know young people involved in politics and gave many people enlightenment moments and got them to come into the arena. So he deserves a lot of credit for that. What Bernie Sanders cannot do at all, almost to the point where it's embarrassing, he has like negative talent on this front, is to play Machiavellian backroom politics. And you might say, hey, that's a benefit, but when you're in Washington, D.C., and all of your enemies are playing Machiavellian backroom politics, you better damn well know how to be, and he doesn't. And so all the opportunities that he had to be specific, to make specific demands, he didn't do it. Why didn't he do it? I don't know. It could be something as simple as he doesn't want to fail and then have to save face. You know what I mean? Like if he says this specific person for this specific role and they don't do it, well, then he's in a position where he would have to answer for that. And that could create some public embarrassment. But guess what? You're already being publicly embarrassed because he's disrespecting you and disregarding you at every step of the way. So you might as well actually go to the mat for the movement and go to the mat for the cause. And he's not. He really does believe in some very strange way that going along to get along is going to yield better results in the long run for the progressive movement. You know, like you can't elbow your way in the room and then expect them to like you and do favors for you. No, you elbowed your way in the room. Dance with who you came with. The way that the left flexes power is to use the bully pulpit, use the people to, to get aggressive, to play politics with these snakes and these cretins who never want to do any of the things that you want to do because they're more beholden to corporate donors. So um, we actually have a counter on this, by the way. Um, Data for Progress released, like, here, here are the list of the lefties who we'd want in Biden's administration. We were 0 for 13 let me repeat that. We were 0 for 13. Now, thankfully, um, Marsha Fudge was just picked for some position in the administration. She was added to the Data for Progress list, like, on the day that she was picked for something, which is kind of crazy. Like, they were so desperate to get a win, they added her to the list, and they were like, see, we got one of them. So sad, so pathetic, such losers. Um, but, hey, listen, I'll take Marsha Fudge in, in some position in the administration because she's better than a lot of the people who have been being picked, right? Um, and in a clear way. Uh, but you also have, I think, the head of health and human services is a Medicare for All supporter, which is great. So, like, we got one person. He wasn't on the list, to be fair. Forget his name. He's a Latino gentleman. Um, he wasn't on the list, but he is a Medicare for All supporter, and pretty aggressively so. So I'll give credit for that. So we'll say we're what? I'll give him 2 for 15, uh, which is better than 0 for 15, but still, that bar is so low. And I think my point is, and why I'm so hard on Bernie these days, is that whether or not he wanted to accept the reality of it, he was the leader of the progressive movement. 
And you could tell he was hesitant about that because he even said it. He's like, I don't really view myself as a leader. I'm uncomfortable with that position. I believe in bottom-up power and, like, democratic power. So he's very reluctant to accept this leadership role. But, my dude, whether or not you want to acknowledge it, you are a leader. And so you had to flex power. And so I know I've said this a million times, but I've got to say it a million more because some of you who are watching this, maybe this is the first secular talk video you've ever seen, right? By the way, it would be weird to stumble into this community at this late date with all the memes and shit. But anyway, um, what Bernie could have done and what Bernie should have done is when he had leverage, when he had power, he should have made specific demands. When did he have leverage and when did he have power? When he was still in the race and he was consistently taking 30% from Biden, what that proves is Bernie Sanders has 30% of Democratic primary voters. Those are his people. Okay, so what do you do in a situation like that? You go to Joe Biden, you say, listen, I want to drop out. I want to support you, but you're going to have to make it worth my while. And if you don't make it worth my while, I'm just going to sit out the general election. That's it. I'm not going to campaign against you or endorse against you, but I'm just going to sit out. I'm not going to do anything. And I think you want my help going up against Donald Trump, don't you? You want to piss off 30 percent of the Democratic base. You really want to go into the, the fight that is the general election with a wounded leg, is that what you want to do? Be my guest. Go right ahead. It's on you. It's not on me. And then you say, okay, what do you want? What kind of a deal do you want to make? And that's when Bernie could have said, here are the, here are the positions and the appointments I want. Um, and here are the executive orders I want done within the first 100 days. And I want this in writing. I want your name in writing on this so I could go to the base and wave the sheet of paper and say, here's what I got. But instead of getting those demands... He just sort of did everything for Biden that Biden wanted and then just hoped to get paid back later with his sad campaign for being like, what was it, labor secretary? He had this sad campaign of like, oh, I would kind of be interested in that. Maybe I would hope he would pick me. Uh, uh, Bernie, you could have demanded it up front. And so the main takeaway from this segment is that I want people to understand the days of like this up in the air, airy, fairy kind of politics of like, you know, trusting in somebody who's ideologically vapid on top of nominally opposed to you as a neoliberal corporatist, the days of like going along to get along or forming a coalition based on nothing, that's got to be over. It's got to be concrete. And so what I, what I want to leave everybody else with is, you have to be efficient. You have to be effective. You have to play politics because there's no way around it. If everybody else is playing the Machiavellian game, you've got to play the Machiavellian game back. That's one thing. But the other thing is, yes, the, the left's power is derived from the people. Use the bully pulpit. Use the power of the people. Don't be afraid to you know, flood your opponent's phone line with angry people who are saying, you better sign on to this. You better do that. You better do this. Um, but also, everything needs to be definitive. I don't know how we ever got to the point where politics wasn't about specific policy issues primarily. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of people who get involved in politics, and they don't even really think about or care about policy issues specifically. Like, that's the whole point. That's the end-all, be-all. So if you're going to make coalitions with people who are like Patriot Act supporters, Iraq War supporters, Crime Bill supporters, you better have very specific concessions that you can show, here's why I'm doing this. But he never did that. And so now he does these sad things where, yes, I would kind of hope that maybe we could get more lefties and it wouldn't be nice if he were to put his middle finger up to 30% of the party. I don't think that that would be very appropriate. And so maybe he better do the right thing and hopefully he will pick some lefties that we can be happy about. And I would really appreciate that very much. So 
please, Joe, if you would be so kind, I would. He could have demanded all this up front. He could have done it. Now, you can make excuses for him all you want, but just understand, at the end of the day, you're making excuses for him. He squandered a lot of leverage and a lot of power. I don't, I'm not attacking Bernie. I'm attacking his strategy. And so if you can't deal with strategic differences, I don't know what to tell you, then we're just doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over and embarrassingly lose every time and then do this new sad thing, which is I've seen many lefties like claim victory when they obviously lost. You know what I mean? That's one of the things I've seen a number of times is like, claiming that you got what you wanted when you didn't get what you wanted. And it's like, ugh, that is so gross. I see right through it. People caring more about saving faith than, like, getting results. So anyway, I love Bernie with all my heart, but we got to acknowledge his mistakes and we got to adjust moving forward because what I see now is just beyond sad. Okay. You are going to love this next story. Here we go. This story is not a story I really thought I'd ever be covering, to be honest with you. This is a bombshell in the media world. Newsmax TV scores a ratings win over Fox News for the first time ever. Newsmax TV beat Fox News in the key demographic. This is an earthquake. This is a tsunami in the media world. Because nobody ever thought this was possible. Ever. Ever. In fact, there's a lot of, like, sad resigning to the hierarchy in the media world. Like people who work at MSNBC think it is physically impossible, literally impossible, to override Fox News, to beat Fox News ever. Same with CNN. Fox News has always been number one. And so they think like, no, it's just literally not possible. Which shows you how pathetic they are. None of these people have any vision. None of these people have a plan. None of these people have, honestly, talent. (laughs) They don't have it. And so they suck, and they're like, oh, my God, why do we suck? Because you suck. You need new people. You need a vision. You need to have compelling TV that's actually educational and interesting. They don't have any of that. They just suck. But anyway, but this is even more out of left field than the idea of, like, MSNBC or CNN overtaking Fox News. This is a ragtag, startup, little, nothing conservative network that beat Fox News in the demo. Now, to be fair... It's only for one time slot. It's only in the key demographic. And any other time of day, Fox News has like three times to four times more viewers. So I don't want to make too big of a deal of this, but it also is just a very big deal. Um, But my point is it's not like now it's over and every day Newsmax is going to have more key demo viewers than Fox, because that's not true. But it shows that movement is possible. Movement is absolutely possible. So let me give you some specifics, and then I'll, I'll tell you how and why this happened. So in the key demographic, which is age 25 to 54, and this is the one that advertisers care the most about, um, Greg Kelly Reports is a Newsmax show, and he outrated the story with Martha McCallum on Fox News. And so the margin was Kelly had 229,000 viewers, and 
McCallum had uh, 203,000. So, you know, about 20,000 difference. It's a first. It's a first. Now, how did this happen and why did this happen? It all has to do with the election. The, the far right-wing base, I mean, they are Trump diehards. And it is cult-like. It really is. And so when Fox News called the election for Trump, or excuse me, against Trump for Biden, these people just, they didn't want to hear it. They wanted their emotional needs met. In all seriousness, they wanted a safe space. They wanted to be told the things that they wanted to be true. And so Fox News, even though they are partisan hacks, just as partisan hacky as you can get, they do have you know, the brain room at Fox News, which is the data analysts and the experts, and they were saying it's over. Biden won. And so they weren't going to override those people because, like, Sean Hannity doesn't want that to be the case. No, they were just like, yeah, okay, it is what it is. So they were willing to go a long way to do Republican propaganda, but they were not willing to go that far because that is really far. And delusional, right? Because what's the end game? What, what's the end game? Oh, we're going to deny that Biden won. And then what? Eventually he's going to be sworn in. Then what are you going to do? What are you going to do then? You've been wrong for months. So what are you going to do? Oopsie. Like, but there is no, there is no accountability. And there are no consequences. There are no consequences, I guess, for, there is no accountability and there are no consequences for their actions. So, As soon as they called it for Joe Biden, these people were looking for a new network. And they started calling Fox News deep state puppets and secret liberals and part of the the swamp and part of the problem and propagandists. And it was vicious and it was nonstop. And so you had a lot of people flee Fox News and go to One America News Network and go to Newsmax. By the way, you know who's leading this charge the most? Donald Trump. He's tweeting to stop watching Fox News and watch Newsmax and One American News Network. And that's exactly what his people are doing. And so none of these things, guys, like none of the, the hierarchy of corporate media, none of that is really set in stone. None of it. None of it. You can, everything is fluid. The whole situation is fluid. You could have a situation where MSNBC actually commits to left ideas and principles, and they surge to number one because those ideas are actually more popular in, in society. Um, but what we're seeing now is the civil war on the right manifesting itself in the real world. And so you have the, the Trumpists who their whole ideology and philosophy is, I agree with daddy. That's the Trumpists. And then you're going to have like the more establishment Republicans who have the veneer of respectability, the Mitt Romney types. And those are overrepresented in elite circles. And the media is an elite circle. And so now you're seeing this tension present itself. It's all boiling up to the surface now. And uh, I don't know how this resolves itself, but I do know this. Virtually everything Newsmax and One American News Network are saying about the election is false. And I don't think there will ever be any accountability. Because if there's one thing I know about right-wing pundits, it's that if you get something wrong, you never admit to it, and then you move right on and act like you never said it and it never happened. And your audience is willing to go along with you because they also were wrong and they don't want to face that fact. And so they'll just keep 
keep going forward with you. Don't work like that on the left. If I'm wrong about something, you guys will tell me I'm wrong about it, and i got to be like, I was wrong about that. It's happened a number of times. But it's not how it works on the right. And so there is a possibility in the long run of, like, the Newsmax side and the One American News Network side winning out. And by the way, they might already be winning if you had one network instead of two on the far right. So One American News Network and Newsmax, if that was just one network, they maybe already would be beating Fox News across the board nonstop. Man, I, I know I make this point a lot, but I have to make it again. When you talk about creating a network to the right of Fox News, they just want an outright authoritarian network that says our dear leader is always right. Trump is always right. That's all they want. When you talk about creating a network to the left of MSNBC, nobody wants a, a network that's more sycophantic to Obama or the corporate Democrats or Biden. Nobody wants that. A network to the left of MSNBC is more principled and more policy-focused and holds the Democrats accountable, just like we hold the Republicans accountable. That does say a lot, doesn't it, that the far right yearns for that authoritarianism and the far left is so independent-minded that they want nothing held sacred and they want everybody to get the criticism. It's quite a difference, but... This is a big event. Don't get it twisted. Newsmax actually beating, for the first time, Fox News in the key demographic at the 7 o'clock hour. We'll see. We'll see what happens moving forward. But should Fox News worry? You tell me. Okay. Now we're going to go... To Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity decided to comment on the runoff elections in Georgia, and he made an ass of himself. But beyond that, if you pay close attention here, it almost sounds to me like he's drunk. night, the far-left extremism of the Democratic Georgia Party, well, that candidate, Raphael Warnock, on full display, refused to directly renounce Marxism and socialism. Why? Because he's publicly advocated for it many times over the years. And by the way, wouldn't he give a straight answer on Joe Biden and court packing? Oh, uh, haven't thought about it. I don't believe it. I would have given him all the time he needed to give an answer. Take a look. Reverend Warnock, in your writings and your teachings, you've repeatedly praised Marxism and the redistribution of income. Can you here and now for all Georgians renounce socialism and Marxism? Listen, uh, I believe in our free enterprise system, and uh, my dad was a small business owner. Look, these are more lies from radical liberal Raphael Warnock, someone that has invited Fidel Castro, a murderous dictator, into his own church, someone that has celebrated anti-American, anti-Semite Jeremiah Wright. You know, he has also said that police officers are gangsters and thugs and refused to apologize for it. He said that you can't serve God and the military. I'm wondering if you can answer the question, do you support expanding the Supreme Court? I, I, I'm really not focused on it. Um, and I think that too often... The politics in Washington has been about the politicians. They didn't ask if you're focused on it. Do you support packing the courts? And I don't believe him when he says he doesn't have an answer. 
The far-left extremism doesn't stop there. Because tonight we're learning more about the troubling record of Senator Perdue's opponent, John Ossoff, who is facing incumbent David Perdue, because aside from endorsing an unhinged socialist agenda, and I mean way to the left of Bolshevik Bernie and Ocasio-Cortez, earlier this year, Ossoff quietly disclosed ties to a pro-Chinese Communist Party media company. Oh, and he got payments from the highly controversial Qatari-backed Al Jazeera network. See what's going on? Yep, Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, clearly ready, willing, able to team up with Chucky Schumer, the force of radical socialism, and literally destroy everything that Donald Trump's accomplished in the last four years, and probably investigate his family into perpetuity. Hold on, typing down my notes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> awesome. That would be wonderful. There's nothing I'd like more than to destroy all the things Trump has done, like massive deregulation, gutting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a bureau which returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans who were ripped off by financial institutions, reversing those Trump tax cuts where 83% of them went to the top 1%. And the most important part was cutting corporate taxes. Nothing I would like more than destroying those things, destroying his repeal of clean water and air protections. I would like to bring those back, thank you very much. So I would love that, and I would also love his family to be investigated. Why would I want his family investigated? Well, because there's a lot of evidence that they committed crime, Sean. Like, for example, the illegal write-offs that Ivanka was taking, that Trump was taking by giving money to Ivanka and saying it's a consulting fee and then writing it off. Okay, that's one example. There's a million examples. How much money did he make? Jared and Ivanka made like $130 million over the course of a year or two as they were working in the White House. Let's check the source of some of the money. Is some of that coming from Saudi Arabia or Israel, and are they getting favors in return for that? This is what I call corruption 101. Donald Trump taking money from the Saudis through his D.C. hotel and then giving them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal, that's not good. That's absolutely not good. The new scam that they're doing, which is like, Let's raise money to stop the steal, and apparently most of that money is just going to pay down their campaign debt, and maybe even its personal debt. That should all be investigated. So do I think, and by the way, this is the difference between somebody like me and somebody like Sean Hannity. You know what else I think should be investigated? The Clinton Foundation, because that's also incredibly corrupt, and it, it's a veneer, it's a facade for respectability of, oh, we're doing charity. Meanwhile, of course, they're making plenty of money off of it, and there's you know, corrupt connections where they're, you know, way too close with executives and billionaires and business owners and people who really control our political system. I say we should invest the Clinton Foundation, and I say we should invest, uh, investigate the, uh, not just the Trump Foundation, which he does have that and that should be investigated, but we should also just investigate him and his family and their business dealings because it's sketchy as hell. So that's the difference. I'm not a partisan hack. So when I think there's foul play and corporatism and corruption happening, I would definitely investigate Democrats, and I would investigate Republicans. He only wants to investigate the Democrats, again, because he's a partisan hack, and he's a complete loser. Okay, so um, to that final part, I'd say, rock on. That's exactly what I want. Investigate him, which they're not going to do, by the way. I wish they would, but they're not going to do it. He's, they're already saying, like, look forward, not backwards, the old Obama line of, like, you know, 
this, we don't like to look backwards, we look forwards. This is what he said to overlook Bush's torture and illegal wars, and this is what they're going to say now to overlook Trump's financial crimes. I also got a good chuckle out of radical socialist Chucky Schumer. Imagine thinking Chuck Schumer is a radical socialist. Is that what he said? Yeah, radical socialist. Chuck Schumer as a socialist is the most hilarious thing I've ever heard in my life. These guys are down-the-line, standard, boring, neoliberal corporatists. That's what they are. Look at his voting record. <laughs> Radical socialist. Um, then you'll notice he talks about how John Ossoff is, like, bought off by Qatar and China and Russia. Like, I got many criticisms of John Ossoff, but... They're substantive. This is not substantive. This is made up. And everybody likes to Russiagate each other these days, or I should say Chinagate each other these days as well, which is like, you know, people are always arguing that politicians are beholden to like foreign governments and they're acting as Manchurian candidates, when the real scandal is that they're mostly beholden to Pfizer, pharmaceutical companies, health insurance companies, Wall Street, the military-industrial complex. That's who they're really beholden to. And in the case of Trump, it's a little different because he did take that money from Saudi Arabia, uh, and Jared got a lot of money from Israeli banks and then did favors for them. So they're kind of beholden to those states, but they're not beholden to Russia. There's no evidence of that. And really, first and foremost, they're beholden to corporate America and billionaires. Now, same thing with John Ossoff, maybe to a slightly lesser degree, but this idea to overreach and act like he's some sort of Manchurian candidate for China, it's like, you just look so stupid. And again, calls him a radical socialist. I mean, this guy was saying, I'm against the Green New Deal and I'm against Medicare for all. Boring neoliberal corporatists, but they, they have one argument. And their argument is, radical, you're a radical. That's what I think. I think you're a radical. Are you radical? Radical. And they also think that that's an argument in and of itself. This is how you know he's been preaching to the choir for decades, is that he says things that only appeal in his little bubble. He basically does the fundamental opposite of what I try to do on this show. I try to craft arguments that don't just appeal to people who already agree with me, but I, I, it's in my mind all the time. I'm cognizant of the fact that somebody might be watching this who doesn't agree with me. And so I try to talk about things in a way where it could appeal to people who don't even necessarily agree with me. They're like, yeah, you know what, I don't agree with Kyle on a lot of stuff, but that seems like a good point. But there's none of that for Hannity because he's just a partisan hack. Um, the fear-mongering about packing the courts is hilarious because we all know that these milk-toast Democrats are not going to pack the courts. I'd love it if they would. They should do that. You want to have a 6-3 conservative court that can veto any good legislation at all and just claim it's unconstitutional even though it's not? Because that's what they could do. A 6-3 conservative court would be like, meh, oh, did you just pass a bill that gives millions of people health care? We say it's unconstitutional. Revoked. And they'll have BS arguments. I would love it if they packed the court, but they're not going to because they're boring corporate Democrats. You know, they, try to, they, they make them seem a lot cooler than they are. But uh, the final point, and my favorite point, is Sean says, and doesn't he sound drunk? I really think he sounds drunk in this clip. I really do. He sounds just totally hammered to me. In fact, originally I was listening to the clip on like 1.5 times speed or 2 times speed, and it sounded fine. And then when I put it at normal speed, I was like, oh, he's hammered, dog. He's sipping a little something, something. He's got a little flask or something underneath the desk or in his jacket pocket. That's what it sounds like. Um, but he says, uh, Warnock couldn't renounce socialism. And then he shows the clip, and, and Warnock is asked, like, you know, 
do you believe in Marxism or socialism, something along, something along those lines. And then his response is, I believe in our free enterprise system. My dad was a small business owner. How can Sean look at that and say, oh, he couldn't renounce Marxism? He literally just said, I believe in the free enterprise system, and my dad was a small business owner. That's exactly what he's doing. That's him saying, no, I actually don't believe in Marxism. I believe in our free enterprise system. That is the, that's directly the opposite point that Sean claimed he made. Like, I don't, it really is amazing to me, the stuff that they get away with or try to get away with on Fox News. Like, how did you think for even a second, for even a second, that you can make that point and then get it by people? And to be fair, people who are just going into it and they don't like the Democrats, they'll probably be like, yeah, Sean's right. But you just saw his point contradict what Sean said. He said, I believe in a free enterprise system. That's him saying, I believe in capitalism. Agree to disagree with that. It doesn't matter however you feel about that. That's what he said. I believe in the free enterprise system. My dad was a small business owner. And he's acting like that's, no, he's a Marxist and he refused to say anything but that. That's not true, Sean. These guys are amazing. Listen, he's a dying breed. Him and Rush Limbaugh, like he's a dying breed. This stuff is so sloppy and so stupid that it's only appealing to people who are in retirement homes. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, in the modern internet age, the new media age, this stuff isn't going to land. Even young conservatives will look at this guy and be like, fuck, shut up, Sean. You sound so stupid. They're more likely to turn, tune into, like, Tucker or watch some new media show. But, like, who could watch this drivel and like it? Just complete partisan hacks in retirement communities who uh, aren't really interested in finding the truth. They're interested in having their emotional needs met and somebody to give them the simplistic narrative of like, left bad, right good. I'm here to say that every night with my square-ass jaw and my like American flag lapel pin. And it's like, okay, congrats on being like a, a, a human living stereotype. Because that's exactly what you are. Okay, I got another awesome story for you. There's a lot to say about this one. So recently I showed you guys the very first Republican primary 2024 poll that I've seen. And if I remember correctly, you had Trump up there, but you had Romney nipping at his heels. He was like Trump 26%, Romney 20%. Forget who did that poll, but if I remember correctly, it was a company I had never heard of. So we covered that and talked about it, and my takeaway from it was that's the exact split in the Republican Party that I predicted and I expected. Um, You're going to have the more establishment Republicans, the elitist Republicans, who want to put that mask back on. Put the veneer in the facade and do the kabuki theater of like, we're serious people. (laughs) We're polite and have decorum. The D.C. elite Republicans are going to want to do that. Um, But the Trumpists don't want to go back. 
They want to have the guy with no filter. They want to have the guy who shoots from the hip. They want to have the guy who's loud and aggressive. Um, he just culturally, he fits with middle-income and lower-income Republicans so much better. And the more upper-middle-income and rich Republicans want a guy more like Mitt Romney. So that poll showed that split in a very clear way. And, you know, I, in my mind, I thought, well, definitely the, the Trump side is going to be bigger. Even though Trump just lost and usually losers have to go away for a while. Trump's just not even acknowledging that he lost. And so he's sort of like plowing forward. And um, so as a result of that, his numbers are still high. And they're higher than the Romney wing. And I think they will continue to be higher than the Romney wing. But Romney made a good showing. Well, now we have a new poll that came out, which actually I think kind of destroys the previous narrative. This is really interesting. So this one is from McLaughlin and Newsmax. Now you could say perhaps this isn't the most trusted source, but I don't know. The last poll, who knows if that was trusted either. I really don't know. Um, but there is a narrative here to discuss. So 2024 Re- National Republican primary without Trump. Look at this. Pence, 20%. Trump Jr., 20%. Cruz, 7%. Haley, 6%. Romney, 5%. Ivanka Trump, 4%, Kasich, 3%, Rubio, 3%, DeSantis, 2%, Cotton, 2%, uh, Noam, 2%, Tim Scott, 2%, Pompeo, 1%, Carlson, Tucker Carlson, 1%, Rick Scott, 0%. So if the previous poll said you're going to have a Republican civil war, it's going to be the elitist Republicans versus the Trumpist Republicans. What this poll says is ain't no civil war, son that war's over, and the Trump wing won. That's what this says. Because Pence, 20%, and then Trump Jr. tied for the lead at 20%. Guys, that's 40% in a fractured field already saying we're Trump ride or die. Damn, son. But I'm going to even go a step further than that. Ted Cruz has aligned himself more with the Trump wing of the party. He has. That's what he's done. That's his new identity. And so since he's done that, you've got to add his 7% to the Trump wing. So that's 47% of the party, of the voters, already saying we're Trump ride or die. The only people who don't fall into that Trump wing on this list of the relevant players, Nikki Haley, 6%, and Mitt Romney, 5%. So the non-Trumpist Republicans, it's only 11% of the voters only 11% of the voters are the non-Trump Republicans. Man, that's something, isn't it? So Trump already won. He already won the Civil War. Because Pence is, a, is the only reason he is where he is is because he hitched his wagon to Trump. Pence is there. Trump Jr. is there, which, Jesus Christ, man, I will. The fact that we probably have to deal with Trump Jr. and Mayor Pete for the rest of our lives like they will always be on the political scene. That really is one of the most depressing facts I've ever heard. I don't know if I have it in me to watch these totally soulless, vapid cretins pretend to care about the world and policy as really they're just coasting off their narcissism and careerism. I want to die when I think about that fact. But the main takeaway from this poll is ain't no Republican civil war. It's actually over and it's already been won by Trump. It's already been won. Now, the takeaway, though, is 
Trump's going to run, so I don't even know why. Like, doing a poll without Trump almost seems silly. Unless he has some sort of health emergency or he dies, he's going to run. And so there's no reason to do a poll without Trump. But this goes to show you a post-Trump GOP is still the Trump party. He permanently remade that party. And there are lessons in this. There are lessons in this for the establishment, but there are lessons that they'll never learn and they'll never adjust. It really is pathetic if you think about it, because it shows the Republican establishment was a house of cards. And so it was so easy for a fake populist to come along and just topple that house of cards. The Democratic establishment, too, is just a house of cards. It's a bunch of careerist corporate idiots, people like Neera Tandon. But because Bernie didn't have that killer instinct and the Democratic establishment is a little better organized, they were able to defeat the insurgent left, the populist left. But in the long run, you should feel like we have a real chance of taking this over because they're a house of cards also to a large extent. They really are. Um, there is no, there's the Republican establishment, but outside of the Republican establishment, it's not like there are many voters who are Republican establishment voters. The actual Republican voters are Trump ride or die. What are they going to learn from this? They're going to learn nothing and they're going to double down on their faults, but the old fake respectability stuff, gone especially on the right. It's just gone. They don't care about your decorum. They don't care about your civility. They just don't care about that. You know, do... Funny enough, those voters, I don't think on policy, like economic policy, they're not as conservative as the likes of Mitt Romney. And that's why Trump had a real opportunity if he wanted to actually be a populist. He could have done some populist things and his base would have loved it, but he didn't do it. He just let the status quo continue. And so Trump really blew an opportunity. He did, but, you know, he was never ideological anyway. Like, all of his populism was fake. Everything about him was just like a show. Um, But he had an opportunity because his base would have supported, if Trump decided to give everybody health care, they would have supported it. If he decided to expand Social Security and Medicare, they would have supported it. If he decided to stop all outsourcing, they would have supported it. But he didn't. He kept the establishment going. So now the defining feature of Trumpism is the no filter and the culture war. And Trump is actually willing to engage in that culture war, whereas the Romney types, that's backburner issues for them. They're actual Kool-Aid drinking believers in the trickle-down economics, the Reaganomics, the deregulation. And um, they're just not as appealing. The fake decorum is not as appealing as somebody who just sort of says what they're thinking. And so there's no going back. Now the Republican Party is officially the Trump Party, and there is no going back to the pre-Trump Republican Party. And you'll see, like, an overrepresentation in the media class, especially in print outlets, especially on CNN, MSNBC, you'll see them insist that that is a thing that can happen and that should happen and that will happen, but it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. So every Republican president for the rest of our lives is going to need Trump's blessing. Isn't that crazy? You made a kingmaker out of a child. They really did that. And that should tell you something about how colossal of a failure the Republican establishment was in the first place, that this man-child could sort of topple it, (laughs) barely trying, not even probably thinking he's going to win, and then he did. So perhaps my original narrative of that Republican Civil War is wrong. And to be fair to me, (laughs) um, I do think the Republican Civil War is real, but it's going to be more of the elitist Republicans, the establishment Republicans going up against Trump and his people but they don't really have the numbers. They don't have the numbers. So it's going to be more of a 
a, a veneer of a fight than an actual fight. But I think it works in a similar way on the Democratic side, too. It's that the elite Democrats, they don't really have numbers of people who support them. You know what I mean? The left actually has the numbers of the people who support them. But just the fact that the moneyed interests are on the side of the establishment Democrats makes the establishment Democrats a force to be reckoned with. On the Republican side, perhaps it's the same thing. Perhaps the fact that the Romney types are backed up with all the money, that they will be a force to be reckoned with, too. And they'll try to fight back against the Trump-like Republicans. But... I don't know. It's all yet to be seen, but this is an incredibly interesting dynamic, and the main takeaway is there's no going back. This is Trump's party, and it's going to remain Trump's party no matter what people want to do about that. All right, now we're going to go to Joe Manchin. Actually, let me turn off the heat because I'm sweating bullets in here. But I will talk about Joe Manchin and the style of politics that drives me absolutely crazy. Oh, shit. I just knocked the microphone off of myself because I'm a moron. It is quite literally about 80 degrees in the studio. And I do not like the way it feels. Okay. Okay, here we go, baby. I opened the door, too, which I needed. Joe Manchin went on The View, surprisingly. I never thought I'd see the day where he goes on The View. Um, and they really gave him a, a softball interview. I want to play this answer for you about his ideology and why he does what he does, and then I want to respond to it. You're the most conservative Democrat in the Senate. I would say, and often have the willingness to work with Republicans. In fact, um, I think you have voted with uh, Trump 51.6% of the time. So you are the most conservative of the Democrats. But after all of the obstruction that we've seen and their refusal to even acknowledge reality right now, as we have just discussed, why continue to work with these people who clearly aren't operating in good faith or, in the president's case, with a full deck? Well, Joy, that's my job, okay? And the bottom line is, I've always said, if I can go home and explain it, I can vote for it. If I can't explain it, I can't vote for it. My state, as you know, is, is, is extremely conservative and red. But I'm a proud yeah. West Virginia Democrat, and I tell people I am fiscally responsible and socially compassionate. That's the way I was raised. And I still feel that to my soul and every bone in my body that I believe that we should be compassionate to help those who can't help themselves and give people a chance that need a chance or a second chance or a hand up. Now, that's all. And I sometimes listen to the far left and the far right, and I want to make sure that my conscience is the far left and the far right is my reality, that we do too much, that we put too much burden on other people, and trying to find that compromise in the middle. I've always done that. I like that. 
So I have a lot to say about this. First of all, let's just talk about this concept of being a centrist or being a moderate. In some ways, I think that that makes perfect sense, and it is reasonable. In other ways, I think it's not only is it not reasonable, it's nefarious. So let me explain what I mean. When you talk about being a centrist or being a moderate in the context of among your fellow Americans, so you get the opinions of all the American people, you write them down, and you look at what the most popular positions are among the people, and then you could look at that and say, I agree with that. So I'm, I'm right smack dab in the center of mainstream American opinion. That's where I am. So I'm a moderate. I'm a centrist. If you say that, I, I actually agree with you, because when I look at polling data, that is my takeaway. I tend to agree with the majority of the American people on most issues. Some issues, yes, I have my disagreements, but on most issues, I'm right there. So if you describe it that way, I would say I'm, and I'm a centrist. The nefarious version of being a centrist or a moderate is this. Washington, D.C. really is the swamp. It really is incredibly corrupt. They've done studies on this, in fact. Um, they, the politicians in D.C. represent the interests of corporations in the top 1% way more than they ever represent the interests of the American people. So it's an institutionally corrupt body flooded with big money, flooded with corporate money, flooded with billionaire money, flooded with money from Wall Street and big pharma and the military-industrial complex. And so if you're in the middle of that spectrum, you know what you are? Corrupt, because they're corrupt. If you're in the middle of that spectrum, you know what you are? Corporatist, because establishment Republicans and establishment Democrats are corporatist. So if you say you're a centrist in the context of Washington, D.C., and elites, I say you're a corrupt, corporatist, elitist. That's what I say. And that's what Joe Manchin is. He's not centrist and moderate in the, in the former definition I explained of, like, I agree with the American people. No. He's a centrist or a moderate in the sense that he looks at the D.C. swamp and he's like, I'm right smack dab in the middle of the swamp. So I feel like people don't make that distinction enough. The other thing about this explanation that I kind of despise is that I feel like a lot of people who say what he said here, number one, they're not actually like well-read and they don't follow this stuff closely. They don't know a lot about policy. They don't know a lot about current events. So it strikes me as like the dumb person's attempt of sounding smart when it comes to politics. And like it, it's the lazy, I think I'm smart response of like... <laughs> Who, me, bro? Listen, I'm above the fray, and I'm, like, really reasonable. So what I do is I, like, listen to both sides, and I make my own mind up. And it's, it, I, all, I think there's a fallacy embedded in that. The fallacy is, like, well, the midpoint between two positions is always the most reasonable thing. And it's, like, in other contexts, everybody understands how stupid that is. You know, everybody understands that, like, if you have one person who says, hey, here's how you have babies, pregnancy and it, reproduction, and somebody else says, I think the stork brings babies, you're not going to say, well, sometimes it's the stork and sometimes it's reproduction. No, you're going to be like, that person's wrong and that person's right. It's a complete fallacy to think that, you know, the midpoint of any two claims is always correct. And so what we've seen in D.C. on top of the corporatism and the corruption is that the right has gone further and further and further and further and further right, and the so-called left has followed them. 
So now you have a so-called left that's for endless war along with the right. You have a so-called left that's for Wall Street bailouts, as is the right. And so he's bragging about being in the middle of that. It's just annoying, right? Like he thinks he's holier than thou, but really he's just right smack dab in the middle of the swamp. So those are the first few things I wanted to say about that. Um, now let's go through some more specifics here. Joy points out, hey, you voted with Trump a majority of the time. And his response is basically like, yeah, I did. That's basically what he's saying. Um, and by the way, the ways in which he votes with Republicans, see, it's not like Joe Manchin helping the people on a lot of issues, but then sometimes he just disagrees with the Democrats. Like, oh, he's more conservative on like abortion, you know, or he's more conservative on certain social issues, guns. No, it's like Joe Manchin, when he's voting with Republicans, he's voting with them to like deregulate Wall Street. Which gets to another issue here, which is, yeah, a West Virginia Democrat, which he loves to call himself that all the time, a West Virginia Democrat would be more socially conservative, would be more pro-gun, would be more anti-abortion. And that's par for the course because that's what the sentiment is in West Virginia by and large. Oh, but a West Virginia Democrat would be economically populist and would be pro-union. But he's more of a character to be like, I want to deregulate Wall Street, which again shows you that it's not a kind of moderation or centrism that reflects his constituents. It's a kind of moderation or centrism, which again, puts him right in the middle of the swamp. Um, and I like when he says, I listen to the far left and I listen to the far right. My conscience is on the far left, but my reality is on the far right. Sure you want to say that? <laughs> Are you sure you want to say that? Is that something that, you know, you think sounds good and reflects good on you? So, um, Joe Manchin is actually going to be one of the biggest impediments to positive change now. Because, you know, we're close to split in the Senate. We're, we have the two runoffs in Georgia, and we have to see how that goes and who wins and all that stuff. But either way, Joe Manchin is going to be a big player here. And his record shows 50% of the time, and previously I think it was 60% of the time, he was agreeing with Republicans and Trump. So he's not even really a Democrat. If majority of the time he's, he's voting with Trump. So he could be a giant impediment to positive change, and it drives me crazy that now he's sort of being glorified. Like, you heard what they said at the end. Oh, I like that on The View. As if he's some sort of, like, high-minded, above-the-fray, reasonable person that others just aren't. No, he's corrupt, and he's part of the corruption, and he's right in the middle of that swamp, and he likes to have this cutesy little story to override it. But the way that you're going to need to deal with a guy like Joe Manchin in this upcoming era, that's where you need somebody who's smart at politics, who's also Machiavellian, who knows how to force their hand, knows how to apply pressure on behalf of the American people, you would need a Lyndon B. Johnson-type character. You would need an FDR-type character. But unfortunately, Biden ain't going to do any of that stuff. And so Joe Manchin is going to vote however he wants, and um, there will be no pushback from the party leadership, and we'll continue to get nothing accomplished, or if anything does get accomplished, it'll be more Wall Street deregulation. So he thinks he's a hero, but he's actually hurting the country quite a bit. This next story made me want to put my nuts in a waffle iron. Mayor Pete is finally being paid back for his favor to Joe Biden, 
Axios says, Scoop, President-elect Joe Biden is considering a high-profile ambassadorship for Pete Buttigieg, possibly sending him to China. People familiar with the matter tell Axios. They go on to explain the reason why he would pick him for such a position is because they want to give him some foreign policy experience so that when he runs for president the next time, he can say, I have plenty of foreign policy experience. They're admitting up front this is all for, like, his future political prospects. And I think uh, Biden famously said, like, yeah, I view myself as a bridge between the older generation and the Mayor Pete's. So remember, and I told you at the time, at the time, I said, oh, watch out for what Mayor Pete gets and for what Amy Klobuchar gets. Why? Because they're probably the biggest reason that Joe Biden won the primary. Or you could say it's Obama because Obama allegedly facilitated everything behind the scenes. He allegedly made the phone call to Mayor Pete and to Amy Klobuchar at the very last minute and said, listen, if you guys don't drop out and endorse Biden, Bernie's going to win. If you do, Biden's going to win. If Biden wins, you have a bright, bright future. And we'll make sure of it. And so that's what happened. They dropped out. They endorsed Biden at the very last minute, stabbing Bernie in the back and twisting the knife. Biden went on to win. And so now they're getting paid back. If the race stayed as it was and everybody stayed in, Bernie probably would have won. Now, he would have won with like 35% of the vote, but, he would, but he, that's winning with a plurality. And maybe the, the, it would have been contested at the convention, but Bernie has the strongest argument at the convention because he got the most votes. Um, but no, they dropped out and they endorsed Biden, and they did it because they're good little Democratic Party hacks, and they're going to fall in line, do what they're told, and then they're doing it more for careerist reasons and narcissistic reasons because he knows, hey, down the line, they're going to pay me back. And so this is him getting paid back. We'll see what position Klobuchar gets, but you bet your ass she's getting some sort of position um, because this is what they do. They'll, they pay you back for what you did. It, the thought that we have to deal with Mayor Pete as a political figure for the rest of our lives, that really depresses me because we know that's exactly what's going to happen. We're going to have to deal with Mayor Pete for the rest of our lives. He will be a political figure and a political player for the rest of our lives. The, the guy who is a, a hyper-careerist who immediately changed his supposed ideology for political convenience. He was trying to pretend like he's a lefty, arguing for Medicare for All on MSNBC, saying actually Medicare for All is the compromise position because the real left position is the NHS-style healthcare system. And so the middle path is Medicare for All. Used to take that lane, saw it was taken up by Bernie, and he wasn't gaining traction, then immediately became a neoliberal corporatist. Changed everything about his ideology. The snap of a finger. You trust that guy? You literally cannot trust that guy. It's impossible to trust that guy. He's a chameleon. Say, what he has, say whatever he has to say. Do whatever he has to do to get himself more power. It's not about the actual ideas and the policies because he changed the ideas and the policies immediately. Vapid careerist narcissist. And now he's getting paid back. As I told you he would. And, uh, you know, they're trying to set him up for a future presidential run because he's the exact kind. Somebody made this point to me. They said Mayor Pete is the kind of person that boomers think millennials should be. God, that's so brilliant. 
because that that's right. That's what boomers look at millennials like. Why can't you just have all your shit together, put on a veneer, a facade, a front of respectability and decorum, be totally fake 24-7, and play the game. Play this bullshit, nonsense game that's not a meritocracy that we're going to agree to pretend is a meritocracy. Why can't you do that? Why can't you suck up to those in power and authority and work your way up that way? He's the kind, he's a boomer's idea of a perfect millennial, which is why he did so well with boomers and he didn't do well at all with millennials. Kiss-ass, narcissistic weasel. Congratulations. You stabbed Bernie in the back, screwed an entire generation, along with Obama, along with Klobuchar. And now you get paid back by getting an ambassadorship to China and then running again in the future. Oh, man. Oh, it hurts. I will never get over that day. At the last minute, they stab Bernie in the back. I don't absolve Bernie, by the way, of his mistakes from then on out, because he made many of them. And I'm actually really mad at Bernie for the mistakes he made from then on out, because it was still winnable and he fucked it up. But you think I'm ever going to forget or forgive the Mayor Pete's and the Amy Klobuchar's and Obama for what they did? Making it to, we had somebody who would have fought for every policy we hold dear. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars. And instead, we're getting somebody who's a status quo manager. All he's going to give you is tweaks around the edges at best. No Medicare for all, no free college. Maybe we'll be lucky and get a living wage. But, you know, we're getting pocket change instead of substantive change. And he's one of the people you have to thank for that. So the salty feelings are deserved. All right. So there's some new reporting that dropped on Trump's fake populism. Wisconsin residents are furious over losing homes for Trump-supported Foxconn factory that was never built. Never built. Never built. So in 2017, Scott Walker and Trump announced that Foxconn would be building a $10 billion factory in a place called Mount Pleasant. And this was with the help of over $4.5 billion in state subsidies. And the idea is you have this $10 billion factory, giant facility, and I think Trump or somebody said it was going to be like the eighth wonder of the world, and they were going to hire 13,000 workers to make LCD displays really make the U.S. a manufacturing hub in a very important way that would have revitalized communities. So what ended up happening? The plans imploded. The factory is actually, quote, 20 times smaller than a warehouse, and they hired a total of 281 people. 13,000 was the number they were supposed to hire. They hired 281 people. That's so bad that they needed to hire at least 520 people to get the first subsidy of $3 billion. They didn't even hit that number. They claimed, well, we've hired 550, but then when the state looked into it, they only hired 281. So I guess they were lying to try to get that money, and then the whole thing fell apart. People were paid to move from their homes for this factory, to accommodate this factory. And some of them were stiffed. 
and didn't get paid. And some of the relocation places were a disaster with flooded basements and mold and all types of stuff. So people were forced out of their homes. Many of them got screwed. And nothing came of this anyway. You know, this reminds me of the carrier factory story. Remember that? How Trump made this big deal. I'm going to save the carrier factory. We're going to keep the jobs here. And what they did is they gave them giant subsidies. They gave them corporate welfare and said, well, basically, we'll pay you to stay here. Now, what happened was over the course of the next year or two, slowly but surely, carrier started outsourcing the jobs anyway. So they hosed the taxpayers and then they outsourced the jobs anyway. And Trump had his little photo op at the beginning, acting like he's a populist and he's saving these jobs. And then as soon as, uh, you know, he went back to the White House, the plans were already in motion where the workers got screwed. And they've, they've done profiles on these workers who were like, I feel like I've been totally had. They duped us. They weren't helping us. Factory outsourced the jobs anyway and screwed the taxpayers. So they got, they double screwed everybody. It would have been one thing if they outsourced and then they didn't also hose the taxpayers, but they hosed the taxpayers and then they outsourced anyway. So it was a fraud. The whole carrier thing was a fraud. This is another thing that's just a fraud. This is fake populism. And this is the stuff that, in my opinion, the media should be covering the most. It was originally The Guardian that reported on this. But this is what should be covered nonstop on CNN. This is what should be covered nonstop on MSNBC. Because this is the truth, and this is substantive. This is way more important and way bigger than any shitty offhand Trump tweet. And this is something that actually would make many in his base rethink and not follow him. If you show that this is real, that this is true, that they actually were dead wrong. They said 13,000 workers, it was 281. Well, guess what? Even some of his most hardcore supporters would be like, that's not right. So this is the stuff you focus on because this is the stuff that lands. And this is the stuff that's really devastating. Fake populist through and through. He's a corrupt corporatist just like the rest of them. And in some ways, he's even worse because he gave you that false hope. And then he screwed you anyway. going to do with these people, ladies and gentlemen? What are we going to do with these people? So the Arizona GOP, the Arizona GOP, they made some news because of this. So you have Ali saying, I'm willing to give my life for this fight, talking about stop the steal, as they call it. And then the Arizona Republican Party responds, he is, are you? So this is a state Republican Party saying you should be willing to die to keep Trump in power. I have to admit, I always have, I'm torn on all of these kinds of stories. Because on the one hand, I just sort of want to laugh and want to point my finger at them and giggle and make fun of them and say they're ridiculous and say they're silly and say they're losers. Like, that's what I want to do. But then on the other hand, it also does feel like I should be taking this more seriously because this is the state Republican Party. Like, you should fight and die to try to do a coup. That's what they're saying. So I don't know. I don't know which side wins out there. I do feel like I lean more towards the ha-ha-hee-hee, hee, this is hilarious side, because it is. Like, there's such goofballs. You ain't doing shit. You're going to watch some Netflix and then go watch, like, a One American News Network video on YouTube and then fall asleep with cookie dough ice cream on your lip. Like, that's what you're going to do. You ain't doing shit, okay? 
So, like, I lean more towards that. But, yeah, I mean, I get people who are freaked out when they see stuff like this because it does feel like we crossed a line and there's no going back. When you have state Republican parties, like, maybe we should fight and die for Trump. What? <laughs> that loser and liar? I mean, the guy who, guys, it's like, this is the point. The election is not even close. And thank God it wasn't like it didn't come down to one state like the year 2000 did with Gore and Bush, because they probably would have found a way to steal it. But now they would need to flip three or four states, and the margins are not a couple hundred votes. They're like over 10,000 votes. So there's no flip in it. And all of their court cases are just comical. They've lost like 40 of them and won like one of them. So they're trying to make their case in court, and they're losing So that would be my question for these people is, what more do you need? Like, what more do you need? I get it. You know, you've watched some Twitter videos that are 20 seconds long and out of context, and you think like, oh, this is proof that the whole election was stolen. I get that that's what you think you saw. But it really doesn't give you any pause when you've lost like 99% of your court cases. That doesn't make you stop and think like, well, hold on now. If I were to make my case, I'd have to make it in court, and I'd have to present the evidence. There's not The evidence isn't there, which is why we're losing. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Really? There's none of that going on? It's just like, oh, obviously the whole everybody's a deep state, everybody's the bad guys. I mean, the Supreme Court, which is a 6-3 conservative court, just threw out the Pennsylvania lawsuit that was trying to dismiss all the mail-in votes. They're a conservative court. Are they also bad and part of the deep state, like these Republican governors who are certifying the election? But the answer is yes. Like, they will look at them and say, no, you're a traitor now. Or maybe you literally do not believe in democracy. Literally. Because, again, it's not even that close. Not, like, you really think that, oh, if it was only the legal votes you count, Trump wins. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, there's a, just a, a level of self-delusion that's out of this world. So calm down, Arizona GOP. Calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down. I mean, I always think it's kind of pathetic, like, when the Democrats had to concoct Russiagate to act like that's why Trump won, because Vladimir Putin put him in there. I always thought that was pathetic, because it's like, really, you're that emotionally soft that you need, like, this security blanket thought to get you to acknowledge that he's president? Is that what you need? I thought that was pathetic. This is just as pathetic, if not more pathetic, because I feel like their lives are even more intricate and delusional than the Russiagate one. The Russiagate one was bad, don't get me wrong. Like, they were really lying to themselves and deluding themselves. But this is, like, all the... Fu- no... I know we lost 99% of our court cases, but that's it's fake, fake news. Something. Come on, man. These are adult children who need a safe space, and they can't acknowledge the harsh reality that the person that they love lost. He lost. Get over it. All right, really quickly, final story of the day. Joe Biden made another pick for his administration. This is Democracy Now! reporting. President-elect Joe Biden is reportedly preparing to pick retired General Lloyd Austin to be his Secretary of Defense. If confirmed, Austin would become the first African-American to head the Pentagon. Austin is the former chief of U.S. Central Command, where he oversaw U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. After retiring in 2016, he joined the board of Raytheon and became a partner in Pine Island Capital Partners a venture capital fund focused on military-related companies. Austin will need a legal waiver from Congress to take the position due to laws designed to preserve the civilian control of military. Uh, The section of 
the selection of Austin is being seen as a victory for anti-war groups who had fought against the possible selection of Michelle Fournoy as Defense Secretary due to her past support of the wars in Iraq, Libya, and other countries. Okay, so again, this is Democracy Now! that we're talking about, which is generally viewed as a left outlet, mostly is a left outlet, but they just fell for the biggest trick that the establishment has been playing on us for, for the longest time. The trick is, what if I float the worst person possible, the worst person imaginable for a position? Let's put Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun as Secretary of Defense. And then they don't pick Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun, but they pick somebody who's really, really, really bad. And then, well, at least it wasn't Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun. No, don't fall for that trick anymore. This guy on his own merits is terrible. He, nobody should be in this position. Nobody should be Secretary of Defense if they worked for Raytheon. Of course he's going to be inclined to want more war. Of course. You're on the payroll of a company that makes money from war. Oh, my God, how do I need to say this? I'm, this is the point, guys. Washington, D.C. is so corrupt and so swampy, they don't even realize how corrupt and swampy they are. Because this is just business as usual. Like, what do you mean? Yes, every single one of us has conflicts of interest. Every single one of us is corrupt and part of the swamp. Every single one of us is profiting in ways we shouldn't be profiting, whether it's from big pharma or for-profit health insurance companies or the military-industrial complex. Of course. But it's everybody around them, so they think, like, what do you mean? We're fish and we're in water. Of course. But no. Any objective viewer could look at this and say, oh, my God, the way the the whole system is broken, the whole system is messed up. You're going to have endless war. You're going to have giant Wall Street bailouts and corporate subsidies as the people are screwed, because that's the way the system is structured right now. And even the left is saying, well, at least they didn't go with Michelle Flournoy. Oh, my God. How can you make such a bad point? This guy should not be allowed. Thankfully, even Elizabeth Warren is like, no, not buying it. She's only, bu- she's only doing that because she's salty that the administration snubbed her, so she's finally fighting back. Up to this point, she's been sucking up nonstop. But, yeah, you guys need to block it. Everybody needs to block it. This is unacceptable. And we're going to have endless war, as far as the eye can see, continuing, because that's what the administration is geared towards. We have to stop that. We have to make that stop. This guy, you think this guy is going to stop with uh, our selling of weapons to Saudi Arabia as they do use it for a genocide in Yemen? No, because he's probably profiting off of those weapon sales. This is crazy, man. End this, end this madness and end it right now. All right, guys. I love you. We're done here. I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.